Okay, like I said, two chapters. We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 21 and 22. I've got a new proposal I'm going to run by Rachel since she's the boss here at Edgewater. Most people know that. I think if you're teaching on two chapters, we need to caffeinate the strawberry lemonade so you guys can stay awake. So I did have a professor say one time, um, if you have to cut anything out, you cut out your own comments. You never cut God's word. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably good advice for all of us. So you'll get less stories and uh, jokes tonight and more of God's word, which is always a good thing. So last week, Pastor Matt was in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Just a a few things that I jotted down that I really loved. Um, He was talking, he kept saying, you know, what happens between the call and the coronation matters. And we saw in chapter 16, David is anointed as the future king. He's only 10 or 15 years old. He's not going to actually become the king until he's 30. So there's this calling, and then the coronation comes much later. And last, last week, Pastor Matt was talking about how that time in between there matters. We're seeing the effects in these chapters tonight of David's mistakes that he makes. He talked last week, um, I, I jotted this one down, I thought it was great. He said, crazy people make other people crazy. If you were here last week, you were like, yes, I have experienced that. Crazy people make other people crazy. Saul was doing it. David had done it. David was pulling Jonathan into his new way of lying and deceiving and convinces him to go down the same path. And uh, another thing I wrote down that I, that I loved from last week as well, um, Matt was saying, are we going to play the harp or are we going to throw spears? The reference being, Saul was trying to kill David. He's throwing spears at the future king. And David, we saw in chapter 16, is called in to play his harp to subdue the evil spirit within Saul. And obviously, we know as believers that that's the type of life that we should be living, those that are bringing peace into the world. So, unfortunately for our hero of the story tonight, King David, we see more of what we saw last week. We've got fears and lies. So, because this, the locations and the, there's a lot of people introduced in these two chapters, they, the story kind of bounces around to three different places, and there's a lot of different names introduced. I want to give you just a, a very simple outline of what happens. So as we read through it, I taught reading and writing and history. I know you have to have some context as you read through it, or you're just reading something that doesn't make sense. So here's generally what happens. David departs from Jonathan at the end of chapter 20. In chapter 21, he goes to see the priest Ahimelech. He gets bread for his men, it's for him, from Ahimelech. A guy named Doeg is there, and he is one of Saul's men. So Doeg witnesses what's happening here. David then goes to a new place, it's called Gath, and he wrongly thinks that he's going to be unnoticed there. Gath is Philistine territory, and there's a king there, King Achish, who recognizes David. David acts insane, so King um, Achish will just say, okay, leave him alone, whatever, let this guy go. And then in chapter 22, we see the destruction and the loss of a lot of lives because of David's um, pulling people into this web of lies. So as we read through it, hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to understand. 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, 
to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? He's concerned because he doesn't have any of his men with him. Verse two, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Verse three, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So David has come to the priest for help and he begins by lying to him about the king's king sending him and him having his men that he needs to feed. There's two things here right off the bat that we see from David. One, I think like his heart is definitely in the right spot. And then the other one is obviously lying is not good. But number one, he's on the run. He's nervous. He's scared. He is fleeing. I love the fact that David goes to the priest. He goes to Ahimelech. He goes to really what we would call a, a, a trusted pastor or a believer or the church. And he's really, it, it is really a, a call for help. It's the right move, especially somebody who's in search of some guidance or some encouragement. And it got me thinking about a, a guy I just met with a few days ago, and, and he's kind of at a loss. He's at this, in this tough spot. He was walking with the Lord for a long time, and he's just, he's kind of been around the wrong crew, and he just showed up at Edgewater, doesn't even go to church here. And he's like, I just need to talk to somebody. I haven't been walking with the Lord for a year or two. We used to go to this church like 10 years ago. This is everything that's going wrong in my life right now. And, and I just need to talk to a pastor. And I just sat and listened to him. And man, my heart was breaking for him. But inside I was like, this is what you should do. Like you came to the right place. And here's what I can tell you. All of those things are gonna probably work themselves out. And I know being a Christian is not the ticket to an easy life. But here is what I have witnessed. And David talks about it in Psalm 27, four. David actually, what's beautiful about all the stuff that we see David go through, he writes these beautiful Psalms. He says in Psalm 27, four, I've asked the Lord for this one thing, this one thing you guys know, it's what I've desired to live in the Lord's house all the days of my life so I can gaze at the splendor of the Lord. And I sat with this young man and I said, listen, like, Here's a few simple things that you can do immediately, but you need to get back and, and following Jesus. And here's what I've seen happen over and over. The people who come to church, who want to hear God's word, who, who want to cry out to him, who want to pray with others and praise him and, and study his word, I have seen these things get worked out. I'm not saying you're gonna get a new car. I'm not saying you're getting a brand new house. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm just saying when people avail themselves to the Lord and his people, there's a perspective change. And sometimes not, you know, it's, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't always end up easy. But I just see things work out. And that night, he actually came to church. And afterwards, he just came up to me and hugged me. And he said, I'm coming back Sunday and I'm bringing my family. I was like, praise the Lord, man, right? I know. It's awesome. But that's, that's it right there. And the science backs it up. The research says less depression, longer lives, overall better health, a sense of purpose. Again, not easy lives. We know that as believers. 
But time and time again, science says if you're plugged in and committed to a church and faithful church attendance, less depression, longer lives, healthier, more purpose, less strife, that's amazing. You can't argue with that. So on the flip side of this, we've got David who's lying to a priest. Bad move. Bad move. I was like, what does the science say? Well, if the science says that about going to church, what does the science say about lying? There's a lot it says. The more you do it, the easier it gets. You probably know people in that spot. The worse life becomes, the more anxiety, more depression, more stress. Interesting thing, though, I found a study that said a society that doesn't have consequences for lying does poorer overall. So if it just goes swept under the rug and unchecked and unpunished, collectively, society will not do as well. And it's almost like God knows something about living an honest life. Verse four, we continue on. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. I don't know about you guys, try to watch the carbs, holy bread sounds amazing. It's all holy to me. I think. Matt, were you guys here on Sunday? Matt was talking about Ezekiel bread. My daughter's like, hey, that's the stuff we paid $9 for. This is supposed to be a... It's supposed to be healthier, but when you eat one loaf in a setting, I don't know if that actually makes it healthier. So, Verse four. And the, uh, I'm sorry, we continue. Verse five. Sorry, four. But there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. Verse five. And David answered the priest... Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence. Long story short, there's a whole lot here that you can do with just studying like what this, um, what this meant for the priests and in the temple. Long story short, though, the holy bread was on advice of the priests, meant for the priests. It was the best bread. They called it the show bread, the bread of presence. You were supposed to eat it in the presence of the Lord in the temple. It was not meant for people like David, who were lying to priests. It was meant for priests. So, but it was up to the priests what they wanted to do with that holy bread. It wasn't required by God's word. And this is interesting. So we see, it says, the priest gave him the holy bread for there's no bread there but the show bread. So Ahimelech broke a standard priestly custom, but he didn't violate God's word. So Ahimelech makes a very wise, compassionate understanding of the situation and blesses David. And Jesus actually refers to this moment later on in Matthew. Ahimelech understood human need is more important than Levitical observance in this point. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 comes back to what happens in this chapter. I find it fascinating when Jesus refers to a specific story in the Old Testament. He's with his disciples and they were criticized for breaking religious custom. So Jesus used what Ahimelech did to explain the matter. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 3, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God 
and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I can just picture them like, uh, we know that story. We hadn't really thought about this. Keep going. Verse five, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you have known what this means, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Did you catch what Jesus said there? Jesus is telling us, listen, don't put obstacles in the way of my people. Don't do that. God's word, sure. Be obedient to God's word. Don't add something to it. I think we've got a lot of religions in the world that have probably added a few things. We have to be careful about putting obstacles in, God, in the path of God's people. Human traditions are never more important than God's word itself. If God had said only the priests can eat this bread, now that might have been different. But God didn't say that. And Jesus says this, I love it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The understanding that God the Father, of course, is just and righteous, but he's loving and merciful and generous. Romans 2.4 has been a great one for me to be reminded of in ministry and as a parent and as a husband. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, Romans 2.4, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's important for us to remember this in relationships with coworkers, in discipleship, if you're in ministry, with families, parents, especially parents. You guys, do not put stumbling blocks in the way of God's people. I've sat with so many teenagers and parents and listened, and I wait until we're done talking, and the kids have left the room, and I talk with the parents, and I'm like, man... I understand, have a high expectation. I totally understand that. But mercy, 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 it means a lot to Jesus. Find a way to show some grace and mercy. Don't excuse sin. Don't laugh it off. Absolutely not. But remove obstacles. So, Verse seven, let's continue. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's an important verse. It makes a lot more sense later. Verse eight, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that sword. Give it to me. I'll take that sword. This to me is an interesting scene in David's life. And I have to wonder if there's a moment when he grabs that sword. Here he is living in fear. In his mind, he has no weapon of defense. 
or so he thinks anyway. And, and I have to wonder, at some point when he's holding that sword, has life now come full circle for him, wielding the sword that Goliath was wielding when David stood across from him? 1 Samuel 17, 45. The Philistine giant, Goliath, is calling out to David, and he says, you come against me with sword and spear. Sorry, David says to Goliath, you come against me with sword, that sword right there, and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David's own admission is that protection from God is greater than that weapon right there. David admits it. I'm not afraid of the sword that you're holding in your hand because I have God. Now David is on the other end of that field, desperately looking for something that would protect him. Sure, I'll take Goliath's sword. How distant he must be feeling right now from God to be put in that position, the very sword that he mocked. Verse 10. Now David flees to Gath. So he's an outlaw on the run. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, land of the Philistines. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another, to one another of him in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That gets David's attention. So David gets up, he flees, he goes into enemy territory, again on the run, panicked, paranoid. Here he puts himself in enemy territory in front of the king, Philistine king now. I can't imagine how discouraged he is at this point and how honestly ashamed he probably is inside. On the run, fearful. And here he is in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the man who carried Goliath's sword to go to Goliath's hometown now with his sword. It doesn't make sense for the man who was sustained by the sacred bread of God to be looking for refuge among the pagans. It doesn't make sense for the man after God's own heart to change his address in this moment to Gath, this land of the Philistines. David's a mess at this point, absolute mess. FYI, I would not recommend running into enemy territory when you're at your weakest. When you feel distant from God, I would not recommend going into enemy territory. This line, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, is a wake-up call for David. He is now concerned. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle, spit, run down his beard, which I did a little bit of research on that. It seems odd that it's like mentioned. He let his spittle run down his beard. But that actually is a sign that you are actually crazy because a man in that day, in that culture, would not defile his beard that way. And I've seen some of you defile your beard with Doritos and all kinds of stuff. But in this situation, <laughs> this guy purposefully let spittle run down his beard. 14, then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I love, he's just like, are you kidding me? We have enough crazy people here. You, got, you brought me another one? Shall this fellow come into my house? 
So he's got this thing. It's interesting because David is acting crazy so that he'll be let go and discarded. And there's kind of, it's kind of split. And, and I've read theologians or Bible teachers on, on both sides of it say that it was wise. It was a, a way that God provided for him to escape, and it was wise of him to do that. And then I've heard other people say it's just even more proof of how desperate and how much of a really a fearful liar David had become. I could probably be convinced of either. My tendency is to want to call him weak and, and all of this stuff, but I don't know what I would do if I were standing face to face with a king who would want to kill me. I don't know. I can't judge him in that situation. Um, I do know in Psalm 34, David does write about it. In verse 17, he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Again, all of these moments have this reflective period where David pens these beautiful songs, man, from really desperate, embarrassing moments in his life. So, next chapter, 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there, verse one. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David gets 400 men, but do you see who the men are? Men who are in distress, they're in debt, they are bitter in soul. 400 losers. That's how it would seem, right? They gather around the future king. The future king attracts all the losers, 400 of them, desperate, in debt, bitter in soul, men who've blown it, made mistakes, messed up, been overlooked. We find out in 2 Samuel, these men become David's mighty men. It's amazing. One kills 800 men in one battle with a spear. One stayed on the battlefield when other warriors fled and killed Philistines until his hand was stuck to his sword, just clenched to it, gripping it. Another killed 300 men with a spear. Benaiah was known for going into a pit on a snowy day and killing a lion and for killing a powerful Egyptian man with a man's own spear. I know men today joke about being an alpha, but you would have a tough time being, I mean, we just can't even comprehend. Taking a spear into a snowy cave, killing a lion, coming back out, killing another man, 300 men in battle. These losers become pretty instrumental in David's world and in defeating some pretty evil men. David attracted a crowd that others would avoid. Men who had failed, messed up, men who were overlooked, the future king took them in. The, the, the imagery is obvious for us. They were accepted. David provided for them. And they had purpose. So many of us have been in the same spot, overlooked, in debt, in distress, bitter in soul. And God says, I can turn you into a mighty warrior. I'll accept you. I will provide for you. I will give you mission and purpose. 
You will become a mighty warrior in my kingdom. That's a good reminder for us. Make sure we're looking to give space for God's redeeming work to be done. Every single person that comes through those doors, every single person you come into contact, potentially, with the right heart, could be a mighty warrior in God's kingdom. Here's what I love so much about the kingdom references. Jesus talks about the kingdom more than anything else in the Bible. It's the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And, and as I was reading this week, the thing that I, I love so much about the kingdom, we don't fully living in a Western um, democratic republic, just like we don't fully grasp what it means in a monarchy, this whole idea of a king and a kingdom. In a monarchy, you're not voted in. There's no campaigning. There's no lobbying. We're so used to that. We're used to the perfect soundbite. We're used to the right press conference. We're used to the the exit polls. We're used to the right campaign. We are all about getting votes and projecting the acceptable image. And in God's kingdom, he says, when you come through my son, Jesus Christ, and accept him as your Lord and Savior, you have royal blood. You are now an heir to the king in my kingdom. There's no campaign. We don't vote as a church to see if you make it in. God says, you believe that my son Jesus died for you? You you believe in him as your Lord and Savior? You are royalty. You enter in to this kingdom, and now you are a king or queen in training. It's beautiful. Verse three, and David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him in all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, we have a long section here. It's gonna make sense as we read through it. We probably won't stop and explain a bunch of it. You'll get it. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse... Matt mentioned this last last week. He won't even say David's name. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He's trying to create some doubt. Verse eight, that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at his day. Verse nine, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who we saw earlier, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. The truth comes out. Doeg reports, he doesn't lie. Doeg is telling him what he saw. This should be expected. He's one of Saul's guys. Verse 11, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? 
you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day. Ahimelech is the one who gave David the sword. He gave him the food. He took care of him. Doeg witnessed it. Saul gets a confession. He brings them all in. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Ouch. Verse 15, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all of the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. He doesn't care what he was gonna say. He already knew what he was gonna do. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. I love, nobody will do anything. He's like, kill these guys and they won't do it. But then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests die. That's a brutal massacre. Verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Total annihilation. Why? Because of David. Ahimelech and 85 priests die. Families, kids, animals, a complete town wiped out casualty of David's sin. We can't forget how far-reaching sin is. So often, it affects so much more than what we realize. Verse 20, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, David knew it, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. He knew it. David knew this would happen. Verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So Abiathar, his son, the only one who will survive. I can just see David the rest of his life having to live with that blood on his hands. Man, just probably committed now to at least this one person to protect forever, obviously. But what happened? This is such a dark, depressing... The, the, what happens here is so sad to me. We just had in chapter 16, we, I was up here a few weeks ago and, and I got to do the chapter where David is chosen as the next king. We're talking about valor and he's well-spoken and he's great in appearance. The spirit of God was upon him. This is the future king and he's amazing and all of these great things. And what happened? What happened? He's on the run and he's desperate. He's dragging people into sin. Matt said... He was called, but not coronated yet. He's a king in training, and he is struggling. We are kings and queens in training, and we struggle. 
probably not to this degree, but we struggle. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what giants you've slayed. It doesn't matter what you have accomplished. It doesn't matter all those great things that you've heard about yourself or the great things that you've done or the great blessings that you have. Every single one of us from time to time and some more often than others, we feel a Saul lurking. We do. We feel like we have to hide in a cave, like we have to run into enemy territory, like we desperately need to find a sword, not the word sword. We need to find some other sword, the enemy sword. We are desperate because from time to time, this fear, this doubt, something creeps in where we feel a Saul is lurking. Whether we put ourselves in enemy territory, we just end up there, I don't know. But we all at times have a Saul that we're running from. Fear, questions, doubt, past. It's probably the thing that when you wake up at 3.30 in the morning, it's stuck on your mind for like an hour. And you can't sleep. You have anxiety about it. Or the thing when you're trying to have a good day, like you're reminded and you're instantly brought back down. Saul is lurking. Just like David, as kings and queens in training, our minds are fragile. Our memories can be short. We can forget what God has done. Our spirit can get weak. It happens to us. Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. He bears fruit. How do we avoid what David went through? I, you know, I don't want to make it too simple because it's really easy for us to get up here and say, you guys just need to do this and life's going to be great. No, that's not what I'm saying. But listen, I see this happen and I'm telling you, we can't overcomplicate things. I think there's three, three little things. We, we have to remember who he is. He's King Jesus. What he's done for us and who we are. Jesus talked about the kingdom more than anything else. It's kingdom-mindedness that we need to have. It's demonstrated. This is such a cool story. It's demonstrated in the thieves on the cross. There's two thieves on the cross, and one gets it and one doesn't. Listen to this story in verse 38 in chapter 23 of Luke. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. They're mocking him, but he said... It's a kingdom, and there's a king. Verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save. From this circumstance, save us. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, here's the difference, Jesus, remember me when you come into your, what's he say? Kingdom. One thief is just like, man, just save me. Just get me out of this situation. Just get me off this cross. Take yourself off the cross. Just get me out of this cave. Just get me away from King Achish. Just get me the bread. Just get me out of this marriage. Just get me out of this job. Just get me out of my finances. Just save me from this. 
This thief says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We know Jesus is Savior. He saves us from sin and judgment and wrath, but he's also King and Lord. That is really important for the believer to understand. We need to live like he is King and Lord. Save me? Yes, I want saved. But Lord, King Jesus, prepare me and equip me for your kingdom. Yes. We can endure the chase of Saul without panic, fear, sin, and lying when we get that. Kingdom-minded people are able to see things a little bit differently. The chase or the lurking of Saul, the trials and the tribulations in this life, now they become opportunities for us to grow and for God to be glorified. Amen? We're not desperate in those moments. We're looking for an opportunity to grow, and we're looking for an opportunity for him to be glorified. That is kingdom-mindedness. That is what was absent for David in these moments. If you are a king or a queen who has lost your way, I just want to give you three simple practical things to consider. Number one, be honest. We see the lies. That, this is what I'm just taking from what we've just witnessed with David. Number one, I mean, at the beginning, obviously, we need to know, know who Jesus is, know what he's done for you, know who you are. But just learning David's mistakes, number one, be honest. The lies, the dishonesty, the sin, they will ruin you inside and outside. And they will ruin every relationship you have around you. It is misery. Be honest. Be honest with God. Be honest with the people around you. Number two, stay out of enemy territory. Don't go into the land of the Philistines. Do not visit the enemy. You fight on your turf. You come through these doors. You get prayer. You surround yourself with the saints. You dive into God's word. You praise. You give thanks. You don't go into enemy territory when you are weak. And a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Whatever your enemy territory is, you know. Stay away, flee, go to the house of the Lord. And number three, go back to the beginning. We all know that moment where we were like, man, God just had a grip on my heart. He just pulled me in. It was, I I could not resist. Prayer, praise, his word, his people, whatever it was for you, worship music, a a community group, the Friday morning men's study, the women's study, mops, whatever it was, go back to the beginning. David kind of showed a little bit of that in the beginning. Ahimelech, I'll go to him. He he, kind of got it. Eventually he will. Have a kingdom-mindedness, please. Know that you can be a mighty warrior, that you are a king or a queen in training. It does not matter. These 400 men, the worst of the worst. Look what God did with them. Amen. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would be a people that would be about your kingdom. I pray that Edgewater would be a place that would be about your kingdom that we would know you, Jesus, as Lord, Savior, of course, but Lord and King, that we would live like it. Pray a blessing on those here tonight. I pray that as they go home and lay their head on the pillow, they would not be anxious. 
They would know there's a king on the throne. They would wake up tomorrow with a renewed perspective that they would be on mission and have purpose and that you would be glorified through them. In Jesus' name, amen.